Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Thomas Edlam. Thomas is a freelance writer who holds a master's degree in applied economics from Boston College. He has written for Antiwar.com, the Foundation for Economic Education, the Future of Freedom Foundation, LewRockwell.com, and the New American Magazine, among many others. He's also the communications director for the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts. Today, he's here to discuss his latest article over at the Libertarian Institute, Inflation Cheats the Working Man. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be back. You've been at it again over at the Libertarian Institute. And, of course, everybody's talking about inflation. But not a lot of people talk about what you talk about in this article about inflation. Of course, it hurts the working class because they have to pay higher prices for the things that they buy to heat their homes, their groceries, their gas. But you say there's a little more to it than that, that not everybody gets hurt. What are you referring to? Well, I mean, okay, there's a couple of practical ways of looking at it, and then there's the the macroeconomic data or what the, you know, the big chart and I'll start with the big chart, but then we can go into the intuitive stuff. The Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Federal Reserve both acknowledge that wages have not kept up with inflation in the last year, last two years, really. And, you know, there's a 3% difference. And if you look at the value of the average laborer, they, they currently make, $31 $31 an hour, but they make the made the equivalent two years ago at the height of the pandemic, they, they it peaked at $33 an hour. So the average workers lost $2 an hour. That's more than $4,000 a year when you average it out over a 40 hour week and a, and a 52 week year. So, you know, that's a lot of money that the workers have lost. And a lot of people don't think of it as cheating the working class, but it it does. I mean, the first effect is the one I described, which is wages. When, when inflation goes up, wages don't keep pace. And 
to use a Keynesian term, wages are sticky and they don't uh, they don't expand as as fast as as the money supply. And usually it's at, way long after that that wages will catch up. So they lose that way. But also when you think about it, the poorer a man is, the more he's a net social creditor. And I know that's counterintuitive because you think, well, you know, the poorest people must be in debt, but the poorest people don't have credit to be in debt. I mean, there's a few ex- few exceptions, you know, some people, some very poor people have college debt, some very poor people have, you know, they're dealing with past credit that they've, they've misused. But for the most part, the people who have debt are the are the wealthy because they have credit and the poor have nothing. They, they, you know, I mean, you think, you think of someone who's just, maybe someone has just entered the workforce, like a, a high school student who's got a part-time job or someone who's just living paycheck to paycheck. He goes to the, the job site every day, punches his clock and, and waits for his paycheck. He's got to wait for his money and inflation pays debtors, but it hurts creditors. It takes the money from the creditors and gives it to the debtors. And, and what that means is that wage earner has one or two, sometimes more weeks of pay out there perpetually, 100% taxed by inflation. Whereas on the other side, if you're a real estate developer and you buy a piece of real estate and you put 20% down and you leverage 80% of it in debt, well, inflation is a great help to you because the the inflation sort of takes away the pain of paying it over time, especially if you have a 30-year mortgage. And I give a good example in, in one of my articles. It's not just that. I mean, when you think about it, the, the, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to rent. Renters, what's the first thing a landlord asks? I want your first month's rent, your last month's rent, and your security deposit. Well, all that gets taxed by inflation because that's a poor man crediting his landlord. And once he gets his wages, what ha- what does he do? He puts it in the checking account and he gets 0.00 whatever percent. And so that week of wages that he's saving to pay his rent, that also gets taxed 100% by inflation. And all that's in addition to the $4,000 that I already talked about. You know, that that's... The, the chart that you, if, you, if you look at Fred has a pretty good way of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis the, online, it's Fred. And if you if you go there, you can see the average wages go up and up and up. But if you index it for inflation, you see it goes up and up and up. And then in 2020, it starts crashing. And, and that's because of inflation. And that's just the the wages that people get. It's not waiting for their wages. And it's not after they get their wages that they've given to their landlord or put in their checking account. So it's, you know, the, the real figure is, is 4,500 bucks or more, even for a poor family, it's, it's, it's a substantial burden. I mean, think about a 3% of your, of your pay. If, if you make $50,000 a year as a, as a family, and that's not, that's not a lot today, that's 1500 bucks. That's, that's the oftentimes the difference between fixing a water heater and, and having to have a cold shower all the time. And we should clarify because your article is certainly clear that when we say the word inflation, we're first and foremost talking about creation of new money. And you have a nice chart in here to show the impact of money creation on what most people understand as inflation, which is rising prices. 
So one of the things that caused a lot more money to be created was all of those stimulus checks that were sent out for COVID, basically paying people to go along with most insane response to a pandemic in human history. Now, we should also be clear, a very small percentage of the money created went out to people like you and me and plumbers and cashiers at Walmart. Most of it went to business owners for political reasons. But what did go out actually almost was kind of a trick, wasn't it? I mean, we gave you some money up front and now you're paying interest that wipes out anything that the government gave them. Right. I, you know, we we on average got, what, $3,200 in stimulus checks. The first one was, I forget what the first one was, 1200 bucks, And then we got a $600 one. And then we got another, I don't know, whatever makes the 3200 The... But just inflation alone, on average, just 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 the loss of wages in the last year has been over four thousand dollars on average for of, of loss for the average person, and that's just the last year. It doesn't count last year. Doesn't count all that money that that the workers have credited to their employers, their landlords that if they put in the, the the bank waiting to you know send their checks off. So it's you know the the government is in many respects like that friend you have that says oh you know i'll play i'll pay the uber fare to the airport okay now it's fair that you buy the plane ticket to cancun i mean that's that's pretty much how it's worked the the government gives you a little bit and then they take a lot away let's take a short break for this important message friends if you're enjoying the content here on tom mullen talks freedom you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. You know, the idea of people like renters being creditors, I don't think anyone else talks about that. I haven't heard it. And I was thinking after I read this article that not only are you crediting the rent that you're going to pay for next month. So in theory, if you paid for your rent, like you do everything else, you'd pay at the end of the month after it was delivered and you have somewhat infinitesimal, in most cases, lost there that you know, you could have paid back in cheaper dollars, but don't forget, you're also putting a whole month's rent down indefinitely. So there's a kind of yearly accrual of losses there. 
And then all the other things that you mentioned and ways in which poor people are creditors. I don't think anyone thinks of it that way. They think the opposite, that maybe if this hurts creditors, then it's that guy with the handlebar mustache who doesn't really have a monocle, but everyone remembers that he does. He's the one that's holding all this debt from all these poor people. Not at all. That guy's probably got a lot more debt and is benefiting a lot more. Right. You know, just so you know, I got this idea from reading an old congressman. His name was William Bork Cochran. He was an Irish immigrant and lawyer who was in Congress off and on. He had like six or I think six different bouts in Congress between the 1880s and the 1920s. And he was classical liberal. And he once challenged, he he was one of Crossa Goldsby's, William William James Bryan's main opponent in the Democratic Party. He was a big gold bug. And he was challenged by some of the Republicans who say, oh, the, you know, the poor man is such a, is, is, is such a debtor. And he says, I challenge, I challenge anyone to say that the poor man, the working man is a debtor. And I'll admit it. If you can show me the working man who gets in his wages advanced before he, he does his work. And of course, you know, it happens once in a while, but in, for the most part, that's not how it works, right? I mean, there's always that lag. So, I, but I, I thought it was, it was pretty good and I, I adapted it into, into the, the, my most recent article. Let me read something here from a far-right conspiracy theorist. Of course, he's an anti-communist, but he says, and I'm quoting, Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. By a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. By this method, they not only confiscate, but they confiscate arbitrarily. And while the process impoverishes many, it actually enriches some. And then I'll skip ahead. It says, those to whom the system brings windfalls beyond their deserts and even beyond their expectations or desires become, quote, profiteers who are the object of the hatred of the bourgeoisie, whom the inflation has impoverished, not less than that of the proletariat. As the inflation proceeds and the real value of the currency fluctuates wildly from month to month, All permanent relations between debtors and creditors, which form the ultimate foundation of capitalism, become so utterly disordered as to be almost meaningless, and the process of wealth getting degenerates into a gamble and a lottery. And then just one more thing that he says a bit later, but further, the governments of Europe, being many of them at this moment reckless in their methods as well as weak, seek to direct onto a class known as profiteers the popular indignation against the more obvious consequences of their vicious methods. These profiteers are, broadly speaking, the entrepreneur class of capitalists, that is to say, the active and constructive element in the whole capitalist society, who in a period of rapidly rising prices cannot help but get rich quick, whether they wish it or desire it or not. So this conspiracy theorist, whose name was John Maynard Keynes, wrote this in 1920, and he's recognizing that, number one, yes, this makes the rich richer, and it makes it harder on the middle class and poor, 
And he also goes so far as to say, look, the rich don't even try to do this. It's just the way it is. And he faults the government ultimately. And of course, we would say the government's bank, but you know, the Federal Reserve is an arm of the government in all but name. So you've got some rather well-respected allies in your theory, oh, no. Thomas. Well, I, you know, I hate to say it, but yeah, both Lenin and Keynes were right in this one instance. And in fact, that was one of the things that I wanted to do when I went back to school a couple of years ago was become the, the Austrian economist who proves, air quotes, empirically that Austrian school economics is right. And, you know, of course, I, I say air quotes, poor Dr. Walter Block, he, who wrote one of my recommendations to get into Boston College, he would be saying, no, 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 it's not about, it's not about calculus, but I still want to be that guy who points to the people who say, who, are, who say they're empiricists and say, actually, this stuff doesn't work. This is this, the, the idea that, oh, well, capitalism is causing this wealth inequality, when in fact, one of the things I found was one of the major factors in income inequality since 1913 is inflation. And, you know, it's not a proof, but all of the data coordinates. And, you know, there's there are many other factors, of course. I mean, there's recessions and, and, and other factors, inclu- including, to a much, much lesser extent, the top income tax rate. But wealth inequality is one of the one of the big reasons for it is is inflation. And of course, we went over the intuitive reasons why that might be already in in the show. But then I, I what I did was I took the data. I don't know if you remember, or if your audience. I know I'm sure you remember Tom, but I don't know if all the audience remembers. Ten or twelve years ago, Thomas Piketty of France and and Emmanuel Say, who's a French American academic out in uh, California, they were talking about, oh, income inequality has increased and it's because of income taxes. So I just took their data and plugged in the, the top income tax rate and said, okay, is it is it statistically significant? And, and the answer was, yes, it was for the top 1% that, you know, when you lowered the top rate, the rich did in fact get richer. And, and that makes sense, you know, that if you allow a rich person who's taking in lots of money to reinvest his money or to declare the money that he had hidden into his corporate funds. Of course, he's he's going to get richer on paper and, and probably in reality too. But it was it, it explained less than 2% of the variance of why income inequality had increased. So when I plugged in inflation, I found that it was more it, it was 10 or, or or more percent of the reason why there, there was this variance. And it was the biggest factor that I could find. In fact, I tried to, you know, the increase in, in the size of GDP, I tried a number of different factors, and, and none of them were as significant, statistically significant as, as inflation was. So and I'm using Piketty's and Seas's actual data set, it goes from 1913 to 2022. So you know, they, they can't say, oh, well, you didn't do it right. And I'm, I'm just doing very simple regret, you know, ordinary linear squares, regressions. It's, I'm not doing anything fancy. It's just saying, okay, is this significant? And, and the answer is yes. It's, it's in fact, if, if you were to quantify it from the coefficients and, and the, the statistical significance, a 1% increase in inflation is roughly in, equivalent to a 6% cut in the top 1% top in cut of the top 1%'s 
income tax rate for the wealth of the top 1%. But interestingly enough, and here, here, this is what kind of surprised me. When I did the same thing for the bottom 50%, inflation was still a big factor, about, about the same. But the top income tax rate really didn't matter that much about their share. And, you know, it, di it didn't necessarily have to because, you know, the, the, as, as you talk about income share, you're talking about, okay, of all the money, how much is earned by the top 1%, how much is by the bottom 50%? Well, there's all this 49% in the middle. So maybe cutting income taxes of the top 1% only impacts the middle 49%, you know, at least at a statistically significant level. But I, I just I just thought it was really interesting uh, that inflation is, is is such a big factor in income inequality, and I'm I'm hoping that some people on the left start picking this up, because if you say oh all the gains since the 1970s have been by the the top one percent and it's mostly true but when when Elizabeth Warren my senator says guess who got all the gains it was the top one percent and guess who got none of the gains the bottom 50 percent that's not exactly true but it's pretty close and I've pinpointed one of the major reasons and yet she is one of the senators who's been a blockade against even auditing the Federal Reserve Bank with all of its crony bailouts and, and its, its inflationary practices. I mean, their, their policy is we want at least 2% inflation every year. So they, they want income inequality to continue to go forward. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think of my love with a girl like you? A girl like you. With a girl like you. A girl like you. With a girl like you. Yeah, I don't know where the 2% came from. I know that Friedman was on this, and I, I don't know if he based that on some estimate that the gold supply used to increase by about 2% a year, and so therefore the dollar supply should increase. I'm not sure. But there's no immutable law of nature that says that this has to be this way. Right. Of course, when the Fed talks about it, they don't mean an, a 2% increase in the supply of money. They mean a 2% increase in personal consumption expenditures, the the, low, the the lowest metric for inflation. And the interesting thing is, so, you know, if, if, if gold historically did increase about 2% a year, 
but that didn't keep up with prices because production expanded by two and a half percent. So under the gold standard, the prices tended to fall in the United States, even though there we got more and more gold across the United States and across the world. Yeah, somehow we had this industrial revolution while prices were falling. How did that happen? I mean, <laughs> we're not even supposed to be able to eat if prices fall. It's the end of the world, but somehow it happened. One of the pieces I wrote la- the week before last for the Libertarian Institute was to analyze economic growth since 1867. And, you know, with the idea that the, on the Federal Reserve's website, they say, gee, if inflation is too low, that that hurt, may hurt economic growth. So I said, okay, let's test it. And what I did was I took from the the Census Bureau all of the GDP numbers going all the way back to 1836 and put them on a spreadsheet. And then I also took the population numbers because I wanted a per capita basis for it. I didn't want to, oh, well, you know, I didn't want people challenging my data, my findings saying, oh yeah, but you know, population growth is almost almost zero now. And, and it's not a fair metric because you're, you're measuring against very high population growth in the 1800s. So I, I did a per capita basis, and then I measured it against, measured all, I took economic growth per capita and measured it against three different metrics of inflation. I, I took the consumer price index, which has been backdated all the way back to, I think, all the way back to colonial days. 1800, as far as something in my book, or there's a chart that the Minneapolis Fed has it going back to 1800. Right. And then they, I think I used the Minneapolis Fed's numbers for the personal consumption expenditures. I think that's the one I used. And then I also used the price of gold, which was fixed until the, well, until 1971. So I measured them all. And what I found was I, I took, I, and I aggregated the years into three periods. The, the first period was no central bank. So it was 1836 to 1913. And the second period was we have a central bank, we have the Federal Reserve, but we also have a gold standard. So it's 1913 to 1971, and then 1971 to present. And what I found was that all of the metrics show that economic growth is on a per capita basis has fallen by about half since we went off the gold standard. And you know, depending on which metric you use, the the previous two periods look better or worse, depending on which metric you use. Naturally, the Fed uses the one that makes itself look the best, the personal consumption expenditures. Yeah, of course. That's the one they they use because it understates the most. Well, I had a thought while you were talking about separating the effects on income inequality of inflation, monetary inflation versus cutting marginal income taxes. I'm going to run something by you. And if you think there's something to it, it could be a new homework assignment for you. Oh boy! You <laughs> I know, know you got scads more, of time over there. Things to do. Sure. So I would think that when you cut the marginal income tax, yes, the rich will get richer because they have more of their own money left over. They invest that money and they get returns. But by investing that money, I would think that the poor and middle class would also get richer. And even if the gap between the two widens, I would think it would widen faster because of inflation, because under those circumstances, you're just driving up the price of the assets the rich hold while you're driving down the real wages and all those forward loans that the the average person has made to their landlord, et cetera. 
So there's almost an exponential effect of increasing income inequality in that one is getting lower and the other is getting higher under inflation, where under marginal income tax cuts, both get higher and the rich, maybe they get higher a little faster. So if you think there's something to that, and there's a way to find that distinction, then by all means. Yeah, no, I I, I think that makes intuitive sense. And you know, one of the other things I thought of as well was the the poor tend to do especially well during periods of higher economic growth. And that kind of, that makes intuitive sense too, that, gee, you know, when can the, the, the poorest of the poor, when do they have their best negotiating opportunity? To advance themselves. And it's when they're negotiating for their wages as wealth is being itself produced, right? Because they don't have, they don't have assets that they can just sit back and, 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 you know, you know, they, they, they don't really have any leverage other than that. And so does one of the questions I had as I was writing this, and I didn't want to string it out forever with research and publish never was, gee, if, the per capita income growth was double under the gold standard without inflation. And that had an impact on economic growth since then. Well, does, is that the reason or one of the main reasons why there's been this expansion of, of, or not expansion, but divergence in, in income. So, I mean, now, now you're dealing with okay. What's the interplay between these very these these variables? And it's I, I think that is both of those are probably something I will eventually research and publish on as well. Well, I'll tell you since you have the skills and I have the podcast, then I've got a long list of work for you to do. So just let me know when you run out of things to look into. I think the one thing we haven't mentioned that's kind of an obvious thing. You're never going to hear from a politician that inflation is worse than income tax cuts, or at least not a democratic or any kind of demagogic politician, because they want somebody besides themselves to be the villains. It doesn't take too many breadcrumbs to follow to figure out that, well, if creating new money is the problem, that's hurting me exponentially more than shaving a few points off the top rate income tax which actually might help me, and maybe not as much as the people getting the cut, then I'm not going to elect people like Elizabeth Warren anymore, that's for sure. So we got somewhat of a battle there against the emotional power of the tax cut argument versus the inflation argument. No, absolutely. I I think we have the data on our side in in the sense that, gee, you know, it's if if we were to get rid of the 9% inflation or 8% inflation we have now, that would be the equivalent of raising interest, raising the top income tax rate to 90% for as far as income tax, as far as in, income inequality goes. Let's do it. Let's, you know, this should be an easy, this should be an easy one, right? Just don't print the money. It should be, but you're dealing with politicians who are in bed with the Federal Reserve, who, who are in bed with the big corporations that want to keep benefiting from the the inflationary change because just because the poor is robbed by inflation doesn't mean nobody benefits from it. Just to go back to Keynes, you know, we, we know who, who benefits and they're going to lobby and fight us for against it. So folks, the message is the government is George Costanza. Everything they tell you, just believe exactly the opposite. 
Every once in a while, it doesn't work, but it's it's in the high 90s, I would imagine, as a rule of thumb. Your life will go better that way. Tom, just for anybody new, we've had a lot of new people join the subscriber list in the podcast. Where's the best place for them to go to read more of your work? Well, I'm the communications director for the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts. So lpofma.org is one place to go. I will link to my articles at the Libertarian Institute there as well and anywhere else I choose to publish. Uh, I've published on, at, uh, in other venues as well. So I, I think that's probably the, the best bet. You should certainly try to follow. I've, I run basically the, the party Twitter. So it's uh, the Massachusetts, just look for a Massachusetts Libertarian Party on Twitter. And I think that's about it. All right. So that's lpofma.org. We'll link to it on the show notes page. And as soon as you get your next assignment for Tom Mullen Talks Freedom done, let me know and we'll bring you back on and you can explain it to us again. Sure, absolutely. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.